Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a first ballot Hall of Fame writer and journalist, David Marinus. We're going to discuss his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Uh, you may know David Marinus from his reporting for decades with the Washington Post, as well as a series of amazing books he's written, like A Good American Family. But he's also known for writing some sports books. Uh, he wrote a book about Vince Lombardi. He wrote a book about Roberto Clemente. He wrote a book about the 1960 Olympics in Rome. And now he's writing about Jim Thorpe. So I can't tell you how excited I am to speak with him about this project. Also, I've got some choice words about the 100th birthday of the great Rachel Robinson. If you don't know the name Rachel Robinson, you're going to want to hear this. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's talk to David Marinus. My first question is really, you know, you can write about anyone or anything. You know, that's part of being David Marinus. So why Jim Thorpe and how long had he been on your sort of to-do list of people that you had wanted to explore? You know, Dave, um, over 20 years ago, I was on book tour for They Marched Into Sunlight, and I, I was in Denver, and um, after an event, a man named uh, Norbert Hill, who's from the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin, who was there, came up to me and said, you got to do a book, a biography of Jim Thorpe. And he handed me some material. And I have to confess that I, you know, I, I didn't buy into it at that point. I had other things on my agenda and I tend not to do uh, stories that someone else suggests to me. Um, but he planted a seed that I didn't even realize he planted. And and you know, so after I had done Lombardi and Clemente, I was looking for kind of a final touch of what I would call a trilogy of of sports figures who transcend sports in some ways. And the Thorpe story came back to me. You know, the Lombardi book, I mean, I'm always looking for two things, a, a dramatic story and something that illuminates American history and sociology at the same time through sports, you know, much like you do. And so, you know, Lombardi was not just about this great football coach, but about the mythology of competition and success in American life and what it takes and what it costs. Clemente was about, you know, the, the role of Latinos in, in on the mainland and the rare athlete who was um, truly uh, a hero. You know, so many athletes are called heroic in various ways and they're not. Um, but he was larger than, than that. And, you know, him dying um, heroically trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after the strongman Anastasio Somoza had, was withholding the aid uh, was truly heroic. Uh, and so uh, for, for me, Thorpe sort of was the third part of that, of what I'm trying to do. And I saw not just a chance to write about one of the great athletes in American history, maybe the greatest, but but more than that, to use his life as a way to explore and examine um, the Native American experience from his uh, era, from the 1880s through the 1950s, um, when the American government policy was so horrendous towards Indians. Mm, wow. Now, what kind of research went into this project? Because it's 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 your research that I think really. I mean, 
I'm not trying to just say this, but like really wows people, like the kind of facts and data you're able to glean from your subjects. Like what, what did it take to get the full story of Jim Thorpe? You know, I often talk about what I call the four leg to the table of my work. And um, the first leg is to go there to the places of someone's life and really um, sort of immerse myself in the uh, sociology and geography of that place. The second one is to get as many interviews with people as I can. The third is to to do deep archival research. And the fourth is to look for what's not there. In other words, to try to break through the mythology and find out the real story. This book was different for me than any I'd done before, and it was because of COVID. Um, There was a point uh, about halfway through my research when I couldn't go there, um, you know, I had to I had to take care of myself and was pretty much confined to working in my home office. Um, so I never got to Stockholm where Thorpe, uh, you know, won his gold medals in 1912, the, the medals that were later rescinded from him and only records restored only last, you know, only in this last month. Um, and that was difficult for me, but I was able to find this incredible documentary, um, a two-hour documentary that that um, a great documentarian, Adrian Wood, had put together, um, c- combining old newsreels from those 1912 games and really transforming, modernizing them so that you feel like you're there. And so I did feel like I was at those 1912 Olympics because of that that. Um, film. Um, You know, I went to probably 12 or 15 different archives. Uh, Avery Brundage seems to be the villain in almost all of my books in some way or another. (laughs) And he certainly wasn't this one again. Um, You know, he he, so the Brundage archive is at the University of Illinois. Um, the, uh, The Carlisle Indian Industrial School is at the center of my book. It's where Jim Thorpe went to school. It was the flagship Indian boarding school in a horrible system that was based entirely on assimilation and acculturation, trying to drain um, Native Americans of their culture, their religion, their hair, their uh, everything, um, and turn them into white people under the theory, um, save the kill the Indian, save the man. Um, so I went to Carlisle, quite a bit. Um, and luckily, um, you know, the internet can be something for good or bad, but the good thing is that so many primary documents are now digitized. So the entire um, Carlisle, you know, all of the government records of Carlisle are digitized now, and those made it incredibly easy to access those. The founder of Carlisle, Richard Henry Pratt, of interesting character in my book, um, his papers are at the Beinecke uh, Rare Book Library and Archive at Yale, as are the papers of a great uh, Native American writer and Scott Momaday. And so I went up there and got went through the, uh, Pratt's papers and Momaday's papers because he wrote extensively about Carlisle um, in a play that was, or a screenplay that was never produced, and I did a lot of research. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, I just, and then I lucked out, Dave. Um, I, before I started the book, I talked to a lot of 
of leading Indian activists because I wanted to, you know, sort of sound them out on, you know, was it all right for me to do this book? What did they think? And they were all very encouraging. And one of them was um, Suzanne Sean Harjo, um, you know, a Presidential uh, Medal of Honor, uh, um, Medal of Freedom winner, um, uh, the activist who really was instrumental, as you know, in getting the Washington football team to change its name, a long, bitter struggle. Anyway, when I interviewed her, she had several relatives who had gone to the Carlisle School, and she told me a story about how her dad had once met the great man, as he called Jim Thorpe, um, and that someone had interviewed her father about that. And I said, well, who's that? Uh, who did that interview? And she said it was a guy named David Hurst Thomas, who's a lead um, archaeologist, anthropologist at the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York. So I called him and went up to see him in that grand old um, you know, museum up, up in, on the Upper West Side and went to his office on the fifth floor, you know, in one of the turrets. And he was at the desk that once belonged to Margaret Mead. And we talked for quite a while. And he, he said he, he had been involved in, in football at one point early in his life. And he worked for Al Davis of the Raiders. So he had read my book on Vince Lombardi, which is always a nice entree. Um, and after a few hours, he said, you know, David, um, I became obsessed with Jim Thorpe and I, I did a lot of research that I could never turn into a book, um, but it's as though I was doing it for you. So he said, I've got eight boxes full of material on Thorpe, <laughs> and he gave it all to me. Um, so that became the David Hurst Thomas archive that I got. So, you know, just by, um, you know, being in the right place at the right time and asking the right questions and and trying to follow Robert Caro's motto, turn every page, um, that's how I do my research. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, Robert Caro is such a giant, so I, I really want right. to understand it. What does that mean to turn every page? Well, it means um, that a lot of archival work is um, is drudgery. Um, and there's a tendency after after you've done some to just, um, you know, move on. And um, I, I can't tell you, Dave, the number of times when I've had that feeling and then something, you know, I, I just said, I got to keep looking, got to keep looking. You know, a lot of this is not relevant, but I might find something. And so many times near the end of my research, I found something that made all the difference. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just a matter of being persistent and overcoming your own um, uh, impatience. See, that's why I have such a tough time using research assistants. Uh, right. I'm always so nervous that they're going to miss something that would have caught my eye or that their tendencies or biases or interests will differ enough from my own that I'll miss that key detail. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do. Um, for the last few books, I've, I've hired um, young college, one, one person to sort of be my assistant, but it's mostly um, for other things like finding photographs and double checking and fact checking stuff. But I love the process of finding some piece of gold, you know, in a, in a place that, you know, after looking for so long and, and knowing what to look for. I mean, exactly. there's a, you know, there's a, when you're doing archival research, there's so many things that you could go down rabbit holes, you know, 
um, and trying to stay focused and keep your eye on what you're really looking for is very important. Yeah, it's it's. I could actually talk to you this whole time, uh, if you like, <laughs> about research. But um, let, 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 let's get to the meat and potatoes. Like how for for, for my young or actually all my listeners, yeah. make break down for us. How good an athlete was Jim Thorpe? Uh, he was extraordinary. Um, he was uh, uh, partly because of his all-around talents. I mean, you can't name another uh, figure in American sports who played Major League Baseball, was an All-American football player, the greatest football player in the early professional ranks, the first president of the, what became the National Football League, and um, the greatest decathlete and pentathlete of his era. So, and, you know, beyond that, I mean, he was, a, he actually was a great ice skater, um, a ballroom dancer. I mean, he could basically do anything. I think the, you know, it's, it's impossible to compare people from different um, decades and generations. Um, and, you know, it, I, I always find that kind of a hapless enterprise that sports people try to do, but there's so many differences in, in diet and training and everything that you have to, you have to take somebody in their own era and just accept it at that. And Thorpe was by far the best athlete of his era and probably of at least the first half of the 20th century um, because he could do everything. Well, and especially I'd say his best sport was, was football. Um, You know, in his era, you played 60 minutes, you, you know, you never came out, you played offense and defense and he was a brilliant uh, left halfback and um, a great defensive back or linebacker um, in that era. Um, the best um, mm. who's, you know, my favorite, uh, there are two great games of his early football career, both with really important resonance. And one was in 1911 in, in that era, Dave, the best football teams were um, on the East coast and teams you wouldn't expect, you know, like, like Harvard and Yale and Penn. Um, And in 1911, he went up to Harvard and single-handedly beat that team. He not only could run and tackle and pass, but he was a fabulous kicker and he kicked uh, all the field goals that won that game, 18 to 15. Um, uh, Drop kicking and place kicking both he could do it either way um and that game you know harvard was was elite at that time and so all of the new york sports writers were up there at that game and that really started the immortalization of thorpe and then the next year clinched it um after he'd won his gold medals he came back and played one final season at carlisle which was a fascinating football team because carlisle wasn't really a college um, it was an industrial school, but it played all of the big universities of the you know, around the country um, as sort of a curiosity and attraction. You know, the, there'd be huge gate receipts for all of these schools, and, and Carlisle was a traveling squad. I mean, they played very rarely at home, but but wherever they went, they drew large crowds that made money for the other teams. Anyway, in 1912. They went up to West Point, and that that game, I say, has the most sort of historical resonance of any sporting event I've ever thought about. 
the Indians against the U.S. Cavalry, basically, um, on a level playing field for the first time. And uh, the Carlisle Indians thrashed them 27 to 6. One of the the uh, stars on the Army team that year was Dwight David Eisenhower, who played linebacker. And he and one of his uh, teammates before the game knew how great Thorpe was, and they they tried to figure out a way to maim him, to take him out of the game. It was a dirty sport then, as you know, and it always has been in various ways, a sport of violence. Um, but it ended up that that um, they did a very hard tackle on Thorpe and almost knocked him unconscious once, but he got up and kept playing. And shortly thereafter, he knocked Eisenhower out of the game and pretty much started the end of Eisenhower's football career. Anyway, um, that was that was Thorpe in that era. Wow. Um, what did you learn about Thorpe uh, athletically that you didn't know before researching this book? What was the biggest uh, eye-opener for you? as far as what he was able to do that maybe you were not aware of before doing your research? Well, um, it was about other things, you know, it was about um, that he was a great ballroom dancer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, He was so light on his feet um, that he was, uh, that he he was once recruited. um, I don't know if it was totally serious, but a, uh, a hockey team, um, um, tried to get him to play professional hockey because he was such a good skater. And, you know, he he definitely would have been an enforcer, um, but he also was was fluid and graceful. He had that combination of of speed, power, and grace that's, you know, that's rare in, in, in athletes. Um, but he could transform that into, into anything. And, you know, one, oh, here's a, another fun thing. Um, when he was at Carlisle, one of his teachers was Mary Ann Moore, the great poet, who lived in Carlisle and as a young woman um, taught business classes at, at the Indian school. And later in her life, she was interviewed by George Plimpton. You can imagine what a fun that interview would be. And um, Plimpton asked her about Tharp. And she had this quote that, I just found better than any description that any sports writer ever wrote about him. She said, he had an ease of gait that's hard to describe, equilibrium with no stricture, but couched in the lineup in football, he was the epitome of concentration, wary with an effect of plenty in reserve. Mm. Um, so uh, that was that was that was Thorpe. Do do we um, know anything? What do we know about the politics of Jim Thorpe? What, did he have a formal politic that you can identify? Um, I don't know if you could. Well, I mean, he, it was it was complicated, as the best I could say. Um, he um, later in life, um, after his playing days were over, he struggled, you know, in various ways. But he went out to Los Angeles, and he became. Um, active in the uh, movie industry as a mostly as an extra. Um, and I guess the most political he became was he was the leading spokesman of the several hundred um, indigenous actors who lived on the edges of, of the Hollywood system. Mm. He was their spokesman trying to get them um, equity um, to have the studio's 
actually hire Indians instead of fake Indians um, to treat them without condescension in the movies. So that was that was his main political um, period. Um, and throughout his life, he was a spokesman for Indian rights. But but it was complicated by the fact that he had real problems with the reservation system and with the uh, Indian Bureau. Um, and, you know, a lot of those issues became really sort of dicey um, at various periods in the 1930s and 40s um, as the government was coming out of its um, kill the Indian, save the man period. Um, so there was one point where, uh, you know, he might have been on the wrong side of an issue in terms of of the uh, the movement to give Indian rights back to the reservations. Um, but he was always very strongly pro-Indian. It was just his, you know, there were certain debates about that. And um, the other thing that surprised me, but um, that didn't surprise me, was that at one point when he was struggling for employment, he was hired by um, the Ford Motor Company to work at the Great Rouge River plant um, in Dearborn. And he was hired by the... Um, notorious Mr. Bennett, who ran their goon squad, basically. And Tharp was uh, assigned to, to work the, um, the, one of the entry gates. Um, he did that briefly and was sort of, uh, many old athletes were hired for those jobs. He never was asked to be a goon or enforcer or, or break up any labor uh, stuff during that era. But he did work uh, there for a few months. And uh, you know, he needed the money. Um, he was sort of used by those people for a while. Um, but I don't think he did anything um, that he would, you know, that would embarrass him later. Mm. Now, Thorpe was a singular man, of course, but yes. his story also tells a story about the treatment of Native Americans in this country. What can we learn about the treatment of indigenous people through the life of Jim Thorpe? Oh, I mean, it's everything is in his life. I mean, the the year he was born, Dave, 1887, was the year that Congress enacted what was called the Dawes Act, um, which basically um, tried to take all of the reservation land away from the native tribes and assign them private property holdings of 160 acres. Um, it was this this act that basically took away most of the reservations in Oklahoma um, and made paved the way for what, what what whites celebrate as the Oklahoma land runs. They were taking Indian land. That was the year Jim Thorpe was born, and that happened not only in Oklahoma and Indian Territory but throughout the West, and you know decimated the lands of the Lakota Sioux and. Um, uh, you know, in the Black Hills area, which was so important to them spiritually. Um, you know, when the whites found gold out there, that was the end of that. Um, so that was the year he was born. Um, and throughout his life, he 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 was, you know, in the period when the entire um, focus uh, of the powers that be, of the white power structure, was to drain the Indianness from Indians. 
Um, you know, they'd stopped the genocide had basically ended by then, although wounded knee came when he was four. But there was a different form of, of, of sort of spiritual and cultural genocide, um, which Carlisle represented, um, where Jim Thorpe went to school, which all of the Indian boarding schools represented. So, um, you know, that's become a, an important issue again in the last few years. Canada has really done a lot of soul searching about their boarding schools and and the cruelty and crudity of them. And Carlisle was the same way. And, and um, our um, Secretary of Interior, Interior, Deb Holland, who's a Laguna Pueblo, has really been instrumental in getting the U.S. to reconsider or to really examine its own history about those boarding schools. If you go up to Carlisle, um, the boarding school is now um, back in military hands. It's where the, uh, the Army War College is. Um, but a lot of the buildings from the uh, Carlisle Indian Industrial School are still on that campus, as is the, the student cemetery. Um, and hundred, you know, almost 200 uh, Carlisle Indian students died while they were there. Mm. Um, taken away from their people. And only in the last few years has the, has the U.S. military allowed the nations um, to come back and repatriate their children, um, take the bones back home. You know, it's just, it's uh, heartbreaking to see that cemetery. Mm. Well, you know, this story, of course, has a, a news hook that you referenced a little bit earlier. I mean, this past week, Jim Thorpe's 1912 Olympic gold medals were finally reinstated. Why does that matter? I mean, first of all, why were they stripped in 1913? And does it matter, do you think, for him to receive justice a century plus after the fact? Well, it's 112 years too late. So in that sense, you know, it would have mattered more if he were alive or even if any of his children, his, his seven kids are all gone too. Mm. Um, but um, sure, I mean, um, I think it always matters to to justify and and reexamine history and get it right, no matter how late it is. I think that's always important. He lost his medals because um, he he had played bush league baseball in the Eastern Carolina League in 1909 and 1910 before those Olympics. Now. Hundreds, literally hundreds of college athletes were playing baseball every summer um, that most almost all of them were doing it under pseudonyms. Um, Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He didn't try to hide it. Um, he was recruited there by a friend of his coach, Pop Warner, um, at the time of crisis after it broke in the January of 1913 after he'd won his medals that he'd played um, minor league baseball, all of the key people, the white power structure, saved their own reputations and threw Jim under the bus. Pop Warner knew what Thorpe was doing, but claimed he didn't. James E. Sullivan of the famed Sullivan uh, Award for Amateurism, he was the head of the American Olympic Committee then and the head of the AAU. And he was also on the board of advisors of of Carlisle Indian Industrial School. He knew what Thorpe was doing and lied about it, um, as did the superintendent of Carlisle. So everybody who was involved pretended that they didn't know what was going on, when in fact, 
it was common that this was happening at that point. Thorpe, furthermore, was, you know, he did get paid. He probably got two bucks a day, $30 a month um, while he was playing. Um, but he was playing baseball. He didn't play baseball in the Olympics. It was track and field. Whereas, just for examples, um, George S. Patton, the future general, was on that same Olympic team. He competed in a different uh, event called the Modern Pentathlon, which was basically military-style events, um, fencing, rifle shooting, uh, equestrian, and running. And he was on the Army payroll training for all of that. You know, so that's what is that professional? Um, the Swedish, um, the entire Swedish team, the hosts, um, their athletes were given leave from their jobs six months before the Olympics, but paid full time to train for those Olympics. Is that being professional? Um, Pop Warner's football teams, like college football teams, like scores of teams in that era and in the future, were paying their players. Um, you know, under the table, um, it's documented. It was you know, Carlisle was documented in a congressional investigation a few years later. Was that professional? So it was basically just picking out Thorpe um, and unjustly denying him his due. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in 1983, um, before the Los Angeles Olympics of '84. The, the IOC made its first half-hearted gesture under enormous pressure, and they awarded Thorpe's children um, the medals, but they weren't even the real medals. They were, they were fake medals that they gave them, but they didn't restore his records, and he was still considered to be not the winner of those medals, um, and it was only this, this last uh, month that the records were finally restored and he was declared the actual winner of those events in the past. Um, the, the people who finished in second place were called the winners and Thorpe's name wasn't even in the record books. Wow. 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 So, and I, you mentioned him earlier, where does the now notorious Avery Brundage fit into this story? <laughs> in the funniest way, Dave, I mean, when you think of Avery Brundage, What's your image in the mind of this fat cat, right? Yep, totally. Um, he was a he was a uh, a decathlete. He went to Stockholm with Thorpe as a competitor, you know, a teammate, but also a decathlete as Thorpe was. He was mediocre at best. He competed at the University of Illinois, was not in Thorpe's class at all. Um, and what I found fascinating is uh, Brundage always had, you know, sort of this aura of it was the competition that mattered and not the nations or the, or the results. Um, well, Avery Brundage dropped out of those, uh, out of the decathlon events um, partway through because he was performing so badly. So, so much for that. Um, and then over the years, he rose in power as first the head of the U S Olympic committee and then the IOC itself. And for decades, when any uh, petitions arose um, asking for Thorpe's reinstatement, Brundage was the loudest uh, voice uh, opposing them um, throughout his life. He he made it sound like everybody was picking on him. That you know he was the he was the victim as opposed to Jim Thorpe. 
Um, and he went to his grave without acknowledging Thorpe's medals. <laughs> wow. Well, you've been so generous with your time, David. I really do appreciate it. I know you're out there in Green Bay. Just last question, because I asked this of everybody. What was the music that you were listening to when writing this book? Did, did any kind of music <laughs> you're writing? Did, or maybe yeah, music you know, that's interesting. Relaxing. Obviously, when I wrote a book about Detroit, you can imagine what I was listening to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Smokey and, and uh, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and the Supremes and Temptations. For this one, I actually was listening to jazz mostly, mm. um, to Coltrane. Um, not that there's any real direct correlation, but but it just got me in the right mood for for this. Um, so that's what I was listening to a lot. Sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. Um, David. But I've always got music going in the background. I, you know, as a you know, some writers can't stand any noise, but mm -hmm. I came up through a newsroom, you know, I've been in, you know, the Washington Post forever. And so that I can write under any uh, kind of noise, but I, especially uh, having music helps me, inspires me. Nice. You know, it makes me uh, sad a little bit that we don't have generations of people going into newsrooms and learning how to write that way, the way yeah, we did. No, no better way to write. No better way. Yeah, is uh, it saved me from having to pay for J school just working in New York. <laughs> exactly. But, me too. Yeah, <laughs> but David, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy Green Bay. Uh, say hi to Vince Lombardi for us, and uh, <laughs> re really do appreciate your time. Okay, Dave. Thanks for all you do. Be well. Uh, we'll too. be back a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, in April, I was at Dodger Stadium for Jackie Robinson Day, and it was a special one. The 75th anniversary of that moment in 1947 when Robinson smashed the color line. On Jackie Robinson Day, every player on the field for every team wears number 42 as a tribute to the iconic trailblazer. But this year, the Dodgers wanted to do more than just have the players draped in Jackie's number. They brought that spirit to the stadium too, giving out 40,000 free Brooklyn Dodger Jackie Robinson jerseys for fans to wear in the stands. Seeing that sea of people, and it was an incredibly diverse crowd, all outfitted like Jackie was almost too emotional an experience to handle. And then it got more so. Before the start of the game, driving in on a golf cart from the outfield to the pitcher's mound and looking amazing was Jackie's then 99-year-old widow, Rachel Robinson. To be in the presence of her strength, smile, and vitality was about as moving an experience as I've ever had at any ballpark. This was someone who had been through and seen so much while asking for nothing except, as Jackie called it, 
first class citizenship. On July 19th, Rachel Robinson turned 100. She has now lived for almost 50 years without Jackie and has spent that time well. She has a master's degree in nursing, worked in the profession for years and taught at Yale. Rachel Robinson also served as a director of nursing at the Connecticut Mental Health Center and as steward of the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which has provided support for more than 1,800 young students of color with a 98% graduation rate to show for it. She also raised her three children, lonely work indeed after Jackie passed away at age 53. And yet what Rachel Robinson is most known for amid the doubts, danger, and pressure from all sides is her critical historical role shepherding Jackie through his years as the great integrator of Major League Baseball. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said of Jackie Robinson that, quote, back in the day when integration wasn't fashionable, he underwent the trauma and the humiliation and the loneliness which comes with being a pilgrim walking the lonesome byways towards the high road of freedom. He was a sit-inner before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides. This is true, but Jackie's loneliness was not absolute and his strength was compounded precisely because of Rachel Robinson. In a 2013 interview with Sports Illustrated, she said, Jack and I had known each other for five years before we got married. That was extremely important because we trusted each other and it helped us to bond during that time. There was such an incredible amount of pressure, it might've driven people apart, but it had the opposite effect on us it pushed us together. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Roger Wilkins wrote that Rachel Robinson was quote, not simply the dutiful little wife. She was Jack's co-pioneer. She had lived through the death threats, endure the vile screams of the fans and watch her husband get knocked down by pitch after pitch. She was beautiful and wise and replenished his strength and courage, end quote. This meant more than just being there for him in the evenings of Jackie's first spring training in segregated Florida, massaging his sore arm and listening to his stories of mistreatment by locals and teammates. It also meant challenging segregation in his presence. She would use the whites only bathrooms and she would bristle for him when they would be sent to the back of the bus and insisting that he be treated like every other Brooklyn Dodger. Rachel Robinson is living history and a national treasure. She's also a link to a time of white supremacist terror backed by the legal system. This was an era too many of us naively believed was in the dustbin of history. But if we need to fight the wars of the 20th century again in the 21st, as the U.S. Supreme Court stands poised to repeal decades of progress, we have examples of the kind of courage it will take to steel ourselves going forward. That courage is and has always been ample in the heart of Rachel Robinson. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. 
Now I got the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award stand up. goes to Aaliyah Boston. If you don't know who Aaliyah Boston is, she just had one of the great seasons in the history of college basketball for the South Carolina Gamecocks. During a national championship season, the 20-year-old forward was named Defensive Player of the Year, Unanimous Player of the Year, Conference Player of the Year, Conference Defensive Player of the Year, and the tournament's most outstanding player. And yet despite these accolades, she was not invited to ESPN's award show, The ESPYs, where she was nominated for Best College Women Athlete. Now, I know people might say that's just an award show, and even by the standards of award shows, it's a silly one, but the move was also exclusionary and deeply disrespectful towards Boston and the sport she dominated for an entire season. Now, Boston's Hall of Fame coach, Dawn Staley, was outraged, and ESPN was forced to make a public excuse about not inviting athletes for awards that wouldn't be given out on television, unintentionally raising the question of why women were being kept off the stage. It also said that invitations were limited in their cramped 3,200-seat hall. Then the uproar became a din, and they backtracked and sent Boston an invite. This was all very embarrassing for a network that spent the last month touting the 50th anniversary of Title IX and the hard-earned progress of women in the sports world. At this point, Boston could have just been silent and let her coach do the talking for her. She could have decided to go to the awards show and hang out with Steph Curry. But instead, she made the choice to stand with that 150-year fight in sports for access and equity. In a statement, this is what Boston wrote. To be nominated for an SB this year meant the world to me and my family. While it hurt finding out that they wouldn't be televising the category, despite it being televised last year and had no intentions for me to attend, it hurt more to see ESPN change course and invite me only after social media caught wind of it. Respectfully, I declined. I'm used to this. It's just another moment when the disrespect and erasure of black women is brushed off as a mistake or an oversight. Another excuse for why our milestones and accomplishments aren't a priority this time, even now, 50 years after Title IX. To every black girl and every black woman, no one can take away what God has in store for us. You matter. You are valuable. You are a priority. You are seen and you are loved. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. What makes these words special, something that should be cut out and put on clipboards or quoted in a sports sociology textbook, is that Boston didn't take the spotlight for herself, but instead shone brightly on systemic oppression well beyond ESPN. She also reached out to others who feel marginalized so her disrespect could make them feel less alone. Boston showed that she doesn't need the ESPYs, but the ESPYs surely need her. ESPN also needs people like her in the rooms where decisions are made. The network has made strides in diverse representation in front of the camera, but representation alone isn't progress. Progress comes through struggle, and in sports, it's a 150-year struggle in which Aaliyah Boston just made the inclusion side that much stronger. So that's your Just Stand Up Award. It goes to Aaliyah Boston. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award so ass this week and I might have to give it to them every week this year goes to the Cleveland Browns you know what kind of loser organization you have to be to just invite this entire Deshaun Watson imbroglio give him the most guaranteed money of any player in NFL history 
And, you know, this week we're going to hear whether Watson got a two-game suspension or an eight-game suspension uh, about, you know, really sexual assault um, of dozens of massage therapists in the Houston area. Uh, And it's just so staggering to me how uh, Cleveland fans are choosing. Some Cleveland fans are saying, you know what, this is a bridge too far. I'm not a Cleveland Brown fan anymore. That's really happening. People think it's not, but it is. But the people who make excuses and think there's some elaborate conspiracy to take down Deshaun Watson, I mean, you might as well be wearing, you know, Cleveland Browns underwear at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm just so disgusted with them as an organization. So disgusted with the choices they've chosen to make. So disgusted with their desire to drag us all down into the muck with them. So Cleveland Browns, sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to everybody listening. Thank you to David Marinus. Y'all got to read this book. Oh, my gosh. Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Uh, Thank you to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. And, oh, by the way, just got announced this week, my next book's going to be about the historian Howard Zinn. If you have any experiences with Howard, hit me up, edgesports at gmail.com. For everybody out there, please stay frosty once again. We are out of here. Peace.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.